0: Open your Bibles to uh, two passages that we're going to read this morning. The first is Genesis, uh, <laughs> Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. And then we will turn to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10 for our other reading. From the Ten Commandments, The 10th commandment tells us this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And then if you would turn to the New Testament to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. We're coming to the conclusion of our study of the Ten Commandments. No applause, please. Um, And we've taken some time to remind ourselves uh, along the way that the very first verse in Exodus 20, the first two verses are critical to our understanding of the place of God's law in our lives. And those two verses remind us that it is in the context of redemption from slavery to freedom that the law is given. We need to remember that because that's really what has happened to us who have become uh, united to Christ through faith. God has delivered us in his magnificent grace from the slavery of our sin to the freedom that we have in Christ. You can't read the New Testament without realizing how that is so emphatic Christ came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it and to fulfill it in us and through us. And so as Christians, we don't come to the law and approach it with the attitude that I've got to be uh, obedient. I can't stub my toe. I've got to keep my nose clean so that God will be happy with me and let me into heaven. We know that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches, but we have to hear it over and over again. Luther said, and I've, I say this many times, but Luther said that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And I thoroughly agree with that. So it is with that sense that we're free in Christ, we are free to keep the commandments which is the way that we can honor and glorify God, and it's also the way that will bring blessing to us and those around us as we keep those commandments. Now, if I could just say it in a different way, what we are learning here is that first our sins before God are much greater than we realize. That's one of the things that's coming out of our examination of these commandments. Uh, At least I trust and pray that that's the case with you as it is with me. The more I, I, I see the law of God, it's like a mirror. The more I see who I really am in God's sight, not who I think I am, not who I'm trying to make myself to be, but who I really am from the deepest levels of my heart. I'm a sinner. And we need to understand that as we grow in grace and and come to understand the law of God better, we see more and more of the sin that's in our lives. Now that's important. It's not the only part of the story because another thing that we have to learn from from the study of these commandments uh, is that our Savior is a much greater Redeemer than we had realized. The more we understand the greatness of our sin, the more we'll turn to the cross and say, Lord, I had no idea that you loved me and provided for all these sins that I'm discovering about myself. And see, that's what the gospel is all about. A thousand years ago, there was a a great Christian leader named Anselm, A-N-S-E-L-M. Anselm was once asked, uh, well, he was approached by someone who said that he did a pretty good job of keeping these commandments. And it sounded a a whole lot to me like the rich young ruler. Done a pretty good job of keeping the commandments. And Anselm responded by saying, you have not yet considered how great sin is. Somewhere along the way, you and I have got to come to that point where we consider and and accept the reality that our sins before God are much greater than they are in our eyes or anyone else's because he's the one that matters. So we see that our sins are greater than we thought. We realize our Savior is the great Redeemer, greater than we realize, but also remember the Holy Spirit is the great helper in our fight with sin. Paul said in Romans Uh, that in Romans uh, 8 that we have to learn to mortify or put to death our sin through the Spirit. So we are looking at these commandments in that sense and as we come to the 10th commandment we've already talked about uh, what it means to covet we've talked about uh, why or or how we covet what what process uh, do we go through that causes us to do that and we did a little Uh, analysis, if you will, uh, from James, uh, especially as to how sin gives birth, uh, is given birth in our lives. Uh, And it starts with this coveting. Now we look at the last part of this issue of coveting and that is how we can keep this commandment. How can we um, not covet? coveting is the only commandment of all 10 that deals solely with our inner condition, our inner convictions and desires, especially all the other ones certainly deal with that uh, as well as outward things. But coveting is what I would call the invisible sin. You don't notice people necessarily who are coveting when you, hear of them or see them because it's on the inside. It will have outward manifestations in in some way or another but the sin itself is there. Now, I started not to say anything about this because it's it's sort of opening up a can of worms and we don't have time to, to get all those worms dealt with. But I think it's important to know that one of the big issues in the PCA, as it is in other denominations it different ways, is this whole homosexual situation with one of the ministers in our denomination, and there are others. And their belief is that they're not practicing homosexuality. They used to, and God helped them and dealt with that, but they still have these inner desires And so they call themselves gay, celibate Christians. And uh, to to many of us, that is an attempt to suppress something that's still sinful. It's not, the practice is, is not there, so that part's not sinful, that's good. But there are greater and lesser sins. Our confession points that out. Uh, And we need to understand that because Jesus used that language at times. He who has the greater sin. But there's still sin. And there's no small sin in the eyes of God. And so our desires, and the 10th commandment is doing this, our desires have to be pleasing to God. And when our desires are not pleasing to God, when we covet something, that's a sin and we need to confess it. So I'll leave it at that, but I think it's important to to note that distinction that we don't sin only when we actually do something. We sin when our desires, which are corrupt, and that we have to overcome that when our desires are sinful and impure and not pleasing to God. So how do we do this? Three things I want you to see here, and these are not, um, I didn't just pull these out of the air. There are scriptures that basically are teaching us this. Not basically, they clearly are. In relation to God, we need to trust. We need to trust God. Many of us have memorized Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. You can say it with me if you want to. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. What's the first word in that? Trust. Trust who? Trust in the Lord. Jesus, of course, was in uh, teaching that in the Sermon on the Mount, in the verse we read last Lord's Day, Matthew six thirty-three. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. God's going to provide for you. Work on your relationship to God. Seek him first and his kingdom. We just pray for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right. Now, I want you to also think about, well, we're going to look at some other passages here and some of them I think it would be good for you to turn to. And uh, one is Psalm 37. We're talking about in relation to God, we must trust. We must trust God. Psalm 37, verses 3 through 7. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. You see, he's saying there, don't trust or, or desire You're something that's your neighbor's. Instead, trust in the Lord. He's making a contrast there. And if you delight yourself in the Lord, which is our number one goal, seek first God. Seek the Lord first. His kingdom, his righteousness. When we do that, verse four says, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, if the desire of your heart is uh, to get your uh, business partner's job, then I don't think you can claim this as, your, as God's way of answering your needs. Because the closer you get to seeking the Lord and delighting yourself with the Lord, the more in alignment your desires are going to be with God's desires. And that's why David says it this way. If you are delighting yourself in the Lord, you're you're lined up with him, his glory, his agenda. And what you desire will be pleasing to God and he will meet your desires. So would you come, what you would do is you would come to God in prayer and you would say, Lord, I really wish I could have had that job. But I trust in you. You you know what's best for me. That's not what you had in store for me. So I submit to that, and I am gladly serving you and what you've called me to do for now. Something along those lines. There's no need to covet what is not ours. I want to emphasize the word. There is no need to covet what is not ours. Why? Because if it's something that we really must have, guess what? God will give it to you. Has he not always done that? Will he not always do that? He will supply you what you truly need. What is best for you? So what do we do in the light of that? Practically speaking, I think, trusting in the Lord means first of all remembering what he has promised what he tells believers about his faithful provisions for all of our needs Paul we've seen this verse before but Paul says in Philippians 4 my God shall supply all of your needs through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus Jesus said in Matthew 6 you know i Your needs, what you will wear, what you will eat, all the needs that you have, and more detailed things. You know, if your car dies and you need a car, then you bring that to the Lord. Because that is an act of trust to do that. How many times, I I forgot the count, but you can read in John chapter 14 and 15 and 16 multiple times where Jesus says, ask and I will give it to you. And of course, again, that's with the understanding. Ask according to God's will. Ask according to the wisdom that the scriptures provide you to lead you in your praying. And God will give over and over. Now in James 4, which we, uh, I don't think I really took, much time with that last week because it just didn't have the time to do it. But in the first three verses of James chapter four, very, very instructive for us in very practical ways. James is a real practical book, as you more than likely know. But here's what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, if you read that and say, well, that doesn't apply to me, then I'd like to talk to you And learn how you manage to do that. Now, sure, we don't come to blows, maybe, but we have conflicts with one another. And yeah, they happen at home. They happen at home. And yeah, they happen at church. And yeah, they happen at work. So James is saying, where does that come from? He answers it. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, there's that word again, and do not have, so you murder, you covet. That's the, the uh, twin brother of desire. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Meaning, I'm not getting what God is providing me, and so I'm going to have to take desperate action. You fight and quarrel. You do not have why because you do not ask. What did we just see? All these promises that come when we ask on the basis of what God promises. You do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Verse three says, "And you do when you do ask." I add the word "when." You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your. Passions, desires, what you're coveting. Your motives are wrong. Why does God answer my prayer? Well, it could be several reasons for that, but this is certainly one of them. And instead of looking at God and pointing the finger at him and saying, why aren't you providing for me? You better turn that finger around and point at yourself. Make sure that your motives are what they ought to be. You may have to do a little confession to God on that and ask for help to do a better job of uh, how you are handling things. All right. Place your trust in him, no matter how strong or weak you think your faith is. If you come to God sincerely in prayer, dealing with these things, confessing your coveting, asking for God to provide for you and meet your needs, then you can be assured that God is going to take you seriously. And you are, you are doing that as an act of trust. Sometimes we use that word faith so loosely and, we, and vaguely that we are not even sure what we mean by it when we use it. So we need to make sure we're being very specific and clear there. You know, this is not, by the way, the... Uh, name it and claim it version of scripture. When Jesus says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. That's not name it and claim it. Lord, I asked to be the CEO of this company and I didn't get it. You failed, Lord. I asked, I did what I was supposed to. Go back to James. Were your motives right? Were you submitting to God's will, whatever the outcome would be? Not my will, but your will be done? We need to do some careful, we need to have a careful understanding of what it means to to have faith, to come to God in prayer and to actually ask him, trusting him, entrusting our lives to him. And uh, just as a a practical thing, when you're dealing with coveting, one of the things that you need to do more than likely, most of us would have this room for this improvement, look at how you can limit your exposure to things that would uh, cause you to covet, that would would, uh, aggravate that desire to covet Let's say a commercial, <laughs> advertising in any form is designed to make you believe that you are missing out, you are lacking, you need something, and you didn't even realize it until we came along and told you that you needed this. And we need to understand that and, and just turn that away, turn away from that, and in any other way that that can come. Just walking. In front of stores. Look, don't go to a store without a specific mission. My mission is to go in there and get that shirt and leave. If that's a problem for you. I mean, it's not sinful to walk around and look at what's in the store, but you've got to have the discipline to not say, oh, I wasn't planning to buy this, but I think I will. And, you know, like it's just all not going to matter. Limit yourself to ways that can uh, intensify and aggravate your coveting heart. Trusting God. Trusting God is simply taking God at his word. It's like when a couple comes together to get married. What are they doing? The word probably is not in the wedding vows. It could be in, in some, but what? the the bride and the groom are doing is they are entrusting themselves to their partner they are committing themselves to that partner and each are making vows to the other trust is critical in a marriage relationship isn't it if you can't trust what your spouse is saying then that's something that needs to be dealt with. You can't just keep going like that. You can't have a a God-blessed marriage if you're not trusting one another. Such a blessing when you can. Second thing to note here, not only in relation to God must we trust, but in relation to ourselves, we must be content. Being content is the real antidote to coveting. If you wanted to put it this way, what's the opposite of coveting? It's contentment. If I'm content with God's sovereign plan for me and his, the outworking of his purposes for me in very specific ways in my life, then I'm not going to be coveting. It's not going to be an issue. Not, it doesn't mean you'll never covet covet but it means you'll have that under control. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 4 about coveting. He doesn't even use the word here, but look at what he says. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. This is Philippians 4, and 12. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Then of course, that great verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Something that Paul had to learn. I have learned to be content. Didn't come it doesn't come automatically. It's not spring-loaded into your new heart when you're regenerated and brought to faith in Christ. It's something that is, is uh, a fruit of the Spirit's work in you and has to be developed. And so we, as we go through our Christian lives, we struggle with being content with our situation, our lot in life. And we have to realize, I can be content because of God's promises and faithfulness to me. Down in verse 19 is the verse I mentioned earlier. My God will supply all of your needs. He's not worried. He's been in all these different situations. He's been relatively wealthy. He's had nothing and been left in prison uh, for long periods of time. One extreme and the other. He's been there. And he's learned in whatever situation he was in, he could still be content. Hebrews 13, 5 Uh, The last, uh, last chapter of Hebrews, the writer says, keep your life free from love of money, free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, and here's another promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content because of the promise of God. You don't just turn content the content switch on in your life. It's something you have to do in your heart before, between you and the Lord. Remember the word of God. Remember the promises of God and you can be content. Now being content doesn't mean that you cannot seek improvement in your life, that you cannot work towards advancing in your company doesn't mean that. But it does mean that you don't set that as what amounts to a God in your life and you say, I've got to have that position or my life is fruitless and worthless. We make these false idols and we we set these goals that that we're running as if we're running the show and we aren't. God's running the show of your life. We must be content with God first. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, Dr. Philip Ryken, who's been a PCA pastor and is the president of Wheaton College in the Chicago area, says, if we do not learn to be satisfied right now in our present situation, whatever it is, We will never be satisfied at all. Wow. I couldn't have come up with that. If we're not satisfied with our present, and what he means is contentment. He's not saying, you know, oh, this is as good as it's going to get. It's terrible. And I'm just locked into this and I don't need to even try. No, but we've got to be satisfied in the sense of being content. Look, this is important to me. For right now, this is what God has for me in my life. It may not last another month. It may not last, it may last for 10 years or whatever. God's got that all lined up for me and I've got to focus on now and not be strangled by the, the anxiety of, of projecting ahead uh, too much. We all have that tendency. Contentment is how we handle the present. We leave to God the handling of the future. First Timothy six, Paul talks there about riches. Uh, uh, and you might say, well, I don't have to worry about that either. Um, depends on how you Define riches, I think. But 1 Timothy 6, uh, beginning at verse 6, listen to what he says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, you might say, you know, lusting, coveting, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Listen. The Ten Commandments are not good advice. The Ten Commandments are commandments. This is how you must live if you would be pleasing to God and do what's best for you and those around you. And if we don't do that, we are sinning. And if we live in sin, the wages of sin is death. It's that serious. It's that important. But at the same time, it's that wonderful because of what fruit can come from it. Further down in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See that? He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may, not, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Boy, those are wonderful, wonderful exhortations and so positive and encouraging to read. What does contentment look like? Before I hit that last one there, what does contentment look like? Well, I'll tell you one way it looks like to me. We uh, had a lot of infants around here lately. And uh, more on the way, joy. That's a wonderful thing. But when you look at an infant's face when they're asleep, that's a look of contentment. Now, when they're bawling, That's a look of discontentment. But just that, you know, when you see that face, you just think they don't have a care in the world. You know, they're totally trusting whatever is in charge here, whoever's in charge. And that's a beautiful picture to think about. Now, the last thing, and let me just uh, note it for us. uh, Number three, in relation to others, we must love. This is connected to contentment. In relation to others, we must love. We read there in Romans 13, he mentions the different commandments that are specific applications of how we are to love our neighbor, just as the first four commandments are applications of how we are to love God. And so in loving our neighbor, we need to remember that the word love is often a verb and not just a noun, meaning biblical love has to do with doing, not just sensing love in your heart and, and having care, a desire of caring for others and compassion for others, but it's putting that into action. Jesus gave us the greatest example of all of that in, in two stages, I guess you could say, one was in John 13 when he was uh, having the, the last supper with, with his disciples and they had uh, the, the bread and the wine and Jesus was telling them that this is my body and this is my blood. But in John's gospel, he focuses on not that, but on the, the act of washing the disciples' feet. And when he does that, of course, the disciples don't understand why is the Lord and master doing this? Why is he stooping so low as to go around to each one of those disciples and washing their dirty feet? And of course, Jesus went on to explain, I've given you an example that you should love one another. Humble service to help others in their needs. That is love. And the ultimate example... That was a prelude of the ultimate example. The ultimate example, of course, is Christ on the cross. How does Jesus love? He loved you and me supremely by laying down his life for us, his perfect sinless life. He was totally unique. In that he was the only person that ever walked on the face of this earth. I was was a true human being, fully God and fully man, giving up his sinless life for our sinful lives so that he could grant us pardon and righteousness for our lives. So what would this kind of love look like in your case? Think of, this is something you can take home and do. Think of one example of how you could show genuine love as opposed to uh, focusing on uh, things that you wish you had and don't, uh, in in coveting. Think of one example from each one of the commandments, five through nine, honor your father and mother all the way through up to the point of coveting, because that's what we're talking about now. Think of one example, and here's an example I, would, I could use. Um, in honoring father and mother, you could say this. I will spend more time with my mom in the nursing home regardless of any financial gain. I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of children who give a lot of attention to their ailing aged parents because they want their parents to be happy with them so they won't keep them out of their wills. Terrible thing to say, isn't it? But I'm sinful enough to come up with that. And I've seen it. Instead, you'll say, that's, that's not an issue here. God's going to provide for me in whatever way he wants. My, my desire should be, and I'm praying it will be, that I give my mom all the attention and help and encouragement and love that I can while she is still here with me. Period. Not looking for rewards, not looking for uh, 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 admiration or acclamation. What does love have to do with contentment? If we put others ahead of ourselves, then we will not be as inclined to covet their possessions or their situations seeking their best interests will prevent us from wanting to take what is theirs in order to promote our best interest this is what paul told the philippians in in uh, chapter 2 he he said you know put one another ahead of yourselves and gave christ is the example ultimate example of that on the cross Now, back up as we stop and finish here. Obeying the whole Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, is God's will for you and for me in Christ Jesus. We must view them as coming from our sovereign king to us as his subjects. Yes, but, even more, we must view them as ways to express our love to God and our love to our neighbor And as we keep his commandments, we find joy and blessing. Learn these commandments. If you haven't done it, memorize these commandments. Memorize the shorter catechism. Justin alluded to that in his prayer. The question is, who is God or what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, holiness, power, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, don't ask me to to recite all of them. Certainly not right now, but anytime. I just happen to be able to remember that one right now. It's a a very good help to know those and teach the children, especially parents, Work with your young children and teach them the child's catechism to get things started. I love the way the catechisms work. What does each commandment uh, uh, require of us, and what does each commandment uh, prohibit us in doing? What do we? What must we do? What must we not do? What is required? What is forbidden? Keep these commandments in your daily living. Give thanks for God's incredible grace to lawbreakers like ourselves that Christ nailed to the cross every single sin you ever have committed or will commit. All of them were nailed to the cross, as the hymn says, and we bear them no more. And then in doing that, he gave us faith to trust in Christ alone for our eternal well-being followed by that glorious declaration of the gospel that we are justified, declared righteous in his sight and that we have that forever once you are justified you are always justified then we can continue our journey through this world of brokenness armed with the spiritual tools to put away sin and instead produce the fruit of godliness until we reach, to borrow Bunyan's phrase, until we reach the celestial city, our ultimate home in heaven. Let's pray. We give thanks, O Lord, for your commandments. They are good. The law is holy and just and good, as Paul says. The Father Paul even acknowledged that he would not have known what his condition was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so, Lord, perhaps there may be some here today that they really haven't grasped the fact that they are sinners and breakers of every one of these commandments until we got to this one. Whatever the case, whatever our situation right now, Father, we pray that by your gracious spirit, you would draw us either to Christ for the very first time or to Christ once again, that we would run to Christ, that we would find consolation, forgiveness, strength to keep your commandments and confidence that you will pour out your mercies and blessings upon us as we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.